All right. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes. We're going to attempt to get into Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 today, make up some, some, uh, some lost ground from last week. Um, we, uh, I wanted to start, there was this story, a, uh, a 62-year-old Frenchman walks into a hospital. Sounds like the start of a really bad joke, doesn't it? Um, but this is actually this, this bizarre news story from 2004. There's this guy, he's suffering from this intense stomach pain, and he, he couldn't eat, he couldn't have um, bowel movements. And, and here's the bizarre part. Um, as the doctors go in, put him under the knife, they discovered the reason for this pain. This man had swallowed 350 coins. Six, you guys are like, what? $650 worth of money was found in this man's stomach. Like, I'm not making this up. Here's the actual x-ray. This, bl- this glowing bowl is the, the, the change found in his, he has more money in his stomach than I do in my checking account. Um, but apparently this man, um, he had a major history of psychiatric illness. No kidding. Um, this, he had this mass, 12 pounds, the size of a, the, the weight of a bowling ball sitting in his stomach that actually pushed his stomach down in between his hips is what this guy's got going on. And my, my, uh, this, the family had known about this. This had been going on for over a decade. And my favorite part, the family said, um, his family tried to keep coins and jewelry away from him. So here's like this, you think like you do like a six month old, he's just, you know, kind of running around. And the doctor said that he would be invited over to people's homes and he'd come into their homes and he would steal and eat their money. This is just insane. And, and this is actually a real thing. It's, it's called pica. Um, it's, it's the compulsion to eat things not normally consumed as food. Okay. Um, it's like goat people, basically. And, and they, they said often it's found um, more commonly with children and pregnant women. I'm just the messenger. Um, but, but sometimes it is seen in, in mental health patients. Um, the sad part of the story is they actually removed the money from his stomach, but he died 12 days later due to complications. Now, some of you might say that that's literally insane. And to a degree it is. Um, you say, I'm nothing like this mentally unstable fellow, right? Um, we would never become consumers of wealth, at least not in the literal sense um, but what about in other aspects? You know, our, our bodies hunger for food. And in the same way, our, our souls hunger for eternity, for heaven. That's what we said back in chapter 3. Solomon said he, he has set eternity in their hearts. We long for this. And the beautiful thing is that God has set this full banquet before us to satisfy our souls. He's given us his word. He's given us his very presence. Do we understand that the spirit of God himself resides in us? That he's, he's fully given himself to us to feast upon his son. And one day we're going to stand before his son and before God and we're going to look at him face to face. We have everything that our soul hungers for. There will be sustenance and there is sustenance for that. But what the world does is it seduces us away from the table and feeds us with lies of these little shiny trinkets and these coins and the American dream. And we feed our soul's hunger with the empty calories of the world. And we end up just as bloated and unhealthy as the pica man. 
We are spirits walking around in bodies, and our true home is in heaven, but right now we're occupying earth. And so the question is, how does a soul that's currently living on this planet find peace? Now, we can admit it, right? We've all had the fantasies. We've all had the, you know, you heard about the, the, the Powerball that recently came, 1.5, even as high as $1.6 billion. Three winners were pulled. And you can tell me, if we would have had tickets for sale in Alaska, you would have bought a couple. This is a safe place. You can admit it. Um, or, or you've dreamed of Ed McMahon showing up at your drawer with that giant check, right? But you know how you deposit that. Um, but we, we all have that dream because we think, man, if I had that money... Wouldn't have to worry about paying the bills anymore. Okay, April 15th's coming. Have you done your taxes yet? Um, and, and we stress out about the finances, and we, and we have these dreams of kind of cruising in the car that we've always wanted, and this idea that money is going to solve all of our problems. Well, money has always been and will always be one of the most complicated and sensitive issues uh, for us. And God knew this. And do you know, it's interesting, when you look through the Gospels and what Jesus had to say, he, he had 39 major parables that he gave. 11 of the 39 major parables had to do with money, had to do with finances. Almost a third of the stories that Jesus told dealt with money. And this is crazy. In the Gospel of Luke, one out of every seven verses deals with money. One out of every seven verses in the entire book of Luke. So God knows that this, this money that he's given us, this system of, of, of economy and currency, this is going to be a thing for us. And J- David Jeremiah talked about the problem that it brings. He said, listen, wealth underachieves when it comes to bringing happiness. It doesn't bring you the happiness that you hope it would, but it overachieves when it comes to bringing misery. So not only does it not satisfy us, it gives us more problems than we ever bargained for. In short, wealth is not the answer to life's problems. And you're going to be shocked about this, but Solomon, in chapters 5 and 6, says that wealth is meaningless. Very good. You've been listening. Chasing after the wind. And now, we would all agree on this, right? Nobody would, I mean, we wouldn't say out loud, money solves all my problems. Like, we know, you know, we could answer that correctly on a test, but... What Solomon does here is he shows us how it can harm, but more importantly, he's going to, and this is rare for Solomon, he's going to offer a solution um, to us and answer the critical question, so what does our relationship with money look like? What, what does a healthy relationship with money look like? Um, and so he's going to point us to four things, four things that we need to know about money in verses 10 through 17, and then he's going to finish the chapter telling us two things, two profound truths that we need to know about God in light of money. And between those two, we'll take a short detour into chapter 6. So first of all, what we need to know about money. Number one, money brings indigestion. I think if you have your bulletin, I think I have, we have the insert in there, should be some blanks. Um, You can fill them in. Money brings indigestion. Uh, He says, those who love money will never have enough How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Money brings indigestion, and not just like the man who literally ate it. Notice how he says here, if you love money, you'll never have enough. He does not say, and this is a very important distinction, he doesn't talk about having money. Having money is not wrong, okay? Money is not evil. No physical object on earth is the 
problem. It's the heart of man that makes it a problem. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Not having money, not even having a lot of money. That's not the issue. It's the love of money. There was a man once who was found in complete despair. He was depressed. He was thin. He, was, he, was, he would lock himself in this room. Now this man you wouldn't be the kind of man that you think would be depressed. He was a multimillionaire. This man had homes in almost every continent on the planet. He had a personal jet to fly him around at every whim that he had. When he wanted to go, he could go. He had servants for, to, to serve as every beck and call. And yet he was depressed, and he was sulking, and he was shutting himself out from the rest of the world. And when his wife was asked, what's the problem? What's wrong with him? Like, is there some major health issue? She said, no. He's as healthy as a horse. The problem is, this man had a goal for himself. That by the time he got to his 60th birthday, he wanted to become a billionaire. And he was bummed out that he had just turned 60 and he didn't have a billion dollars. This man who has more than you and I could ever dream of. And all he wants is more. It's almost the cliche, right? That we always want more money. When, you know, the famous saying by uh, Dave, Rockefeller when he was asked, what's your favorite million? What did he say? He said, it's my next million. It's the next million. That, I'm, that one's going to be my favorite. Once I get that one, it'll be my favorite. But then when I get that one, it's going to be the next one. The Duchess of Windsor, um, she said, you can never be too thin or too rich. Okay? You can never be too thin or too rich, and neither of those are a problem for me. Um, and, and so it's always this, always this idea of more and more and more. And, and that's what Alistair Begg, he said, he said it this way, worse than the addiction that money brings... It's not so much the wanting of the money. He goes, it's the emptiness that it leaves. That's the real issue. It's not going for more money. It's the sadness of going for inward fulfillment, we are told, is found in money. So he says, it's not just the chasing of the money. It's the emptiness that it leaves behind, and it doesn't satisfy us. And that's why Jesus warned us in Luke 12. He said, he said, beware, be on your guard, look out. Why? Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Money only brings indigestion. Second one, money brings increased freeloaders. This one is kind of funny. He says, the more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Okay, isn't that nice of them? They come and they help you spend it. He says, so what good is wealth? Except to perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers. Now, I've got to be honest, um, I know all about this one, um, moving into my swanky role as, as pastor. Um, I've got all these freeloaders looking for green handshakes now. And, oh, you're the pastor now? I mean, people using me for my checkbook and my good looks. Guys, it gets old. It really does. I'm tired of it. But, uh, but seriously, you see movie stars, celebrities, you know, when, when someone gets, has money, people start looking at them differently. And all of a sudden, you got all these cousins you never knew you had. You know, oh yeah, eight times removed on your mom's side. Like, I've got a problem. Can you help me? You know, and it's lawyers, and it's, you know, it's, it's uh, consultants, um, agents, employees. Um, everyone wants a piece of the pie. And so there's never enough pie. That's what Solomon's saying. And then number three, he says, money brings insomnia. Verse 12, people who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. Is the more you have, the more there is to lose and the more there is to worry about. I was thinking about that, you know, when the earthquake hit. Um, and you had to ask yourself, like, what would I have to get out of my house before it burned down? 
and there were four, four local homes um, that were lost. And you'd say, if that would have been me, like, what would I have had to have gotten out of my house? Hopefully, the first thing you thought about was your spouse and your kids. Um, And then maybe think pets, um, some personal, you know, photos or some personal keepsakes, some things that were kind of heirs, heirlooms of some sort. But what is truly valuable versus what is just stuff? David Jeremiah said, when you can fit all of your valuables into the backseat of your car, you can sleep well at night because you've cut down your worry field. So you can put everything, everything that you really, really care about, if it all fit into your car, then you're, you're not going to lose sleep at night because there's not as much to lose. Um, David Rockefeller, we, or we talked about, or John Rockefeller, sorry, um, what, the, America's first billionaire, the first man in America to ever reach a billion dollars. Um, at the age of 53, um, John had, had whittled himself down to where he was living off of milk and crackers, um, he, and he couldn't sleep. He, was, he had developed a deep insomnia. Um, and, and what happened was he was just, it was all due to his worry. He was freaked out. He was stressed out about all the assets, all the things that he owned, and all he could think about was losing it all. And so what he started to do, he said, forget it. And he just started giving it away. He started giving away all of his money, all of his possessions. He started donating them, getting rid of them. And this incredible thing happened. Uh, he, he, his health began to immediately change for the better. And as he got rid of all that stuff, his health got better. And he ended up living to the age of like 98 and, and was much happier off. Because the, the equation is affluence plus indulgence equals sleeplessness. In other words, when you get a lot and you hoard a lot then it leads to nothing but worry and sleeplessness. And how often do you hear an older couple talk about the good old days when they first started off as a couple and they were broke as you can be and they're living off of mac and cheese. I still do that. Um, you know, they had nothing, no furniture. They had like a box and a folding chair. You know, they have nothing. And yet they look back at that time. They go, man, what a sweet time. Just lean on the Lord and lean on each other. It was so good. And we didn't have, no, nobody could steal anything from us, so we didn't have to worry about it. Money brings insomnia. And then the fourth one, money brings insecurity. There's another serious problem, Solomon said. Today, I'm, I'm putting the New Living Translation, so if you're like, this doesn't look like what mine says. Um, there's another serious problem I've seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour, and everything is lost. In the end, there's nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born we can't take our riches with us. And this too is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing. It's like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. And hear what he says. He says, listen, no matter what you accumulate, no matter what you earn, when, when you die and you leave this planet, you lose it. You don't take it with you. He says, naked you came and naked you go. Like, nobody came into this world sporting Nikes, right? Rocking the, I don't know what women wear, espadrilles. I've, I, know, I know that one. Um, I'm good. You know, we don't come with, with the bling and the, and the expensive purses. We don't come with the fur, nothing. We come into this world a naked, bloody mess. And he says, we leave the exact same way. Don't take any of it with you when you go. Um, there was a man named Douglas Tompkins. He is the co-founder of North Face, the, uh, the, the sporting clothing line. And um, he, he was a billionaire. 
I say he was a billionaire because um, in December, um, Doug, Douglas Thompson died on a kayaking trip in uh, Chile, right? Tale as old as time. Um, and in an ironic twist, the, the cause of his death was hypothermia. Now, I think that's, that's not very good marketing for North Face. I don't, I don't want to make light of the situation, but um, w- I was reading this, and, and this thought came to me, I am now richer than Douglas Thompson, right? Like, I, I, ha- I now have more money than this guy who was a billionaire, because he had all that, but then when he left, none of it came with him, and he gave all of it, he might, may, you know, might have given some away to his heir, you know, heirs, depending on how he put his will together, but he came into this world with zero, and he left with zero. Death is the great equalizer. And then Solomon, we fast forward to chapter 6, and he tells this, this somber story. He says, there's another serious tragedy I've seen under the sun, and it weighs heavily on, the human, on, on humanity. God gives some people great wealth and honor and everything they could ever want, but then he doesn't give them the chance to enjoy these things. They die, and someone else, even a stranger, ends up enjoying their wealth, like in the case of of Douglas. This is meaningless. It's a sickening tragedy. If there is anyone acquainted with having everything they could ever want, it's Solomon. You remember we talked about Solomon's, every year he made half a billion dollars. Solomon had anything you could ever imagine, and including wives. Uh, We have some, some real footage of him and his wives there. They are good looking. But Solomon, he begins to drift. What happens is he marries all of these wives. Remember, 700 wives. And there are these foreign, foreign wives. And what it, a lot of his marriages were kind of in the name of diplomacy. He would do it in, in order to make uh, peace and, and good, better relations with the countries around him, which was actually the kind of the very opposite of what God had called them to. He said, stay away from the pagan nations. Separate yourself as a holy nation. Live very differently. Well, he started to marry all of these women. And this is what happened. It's, it's, it's really sad. In First Kings, it says, as Solomon grew old, this is chapter 11, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Solomon wandered from God. He had more than any one of us could ever imagine or desire, and yet he was left raw and empty and discontent. And then Solomon goes into what I think might be the, kind of the hardest part of this entire book. It says, a man might have a hundred children and live to be very old. He might live a thousand years twice over. In Hebrew culture, um, it was, you, you were seen, your family was seen as blessed if the father, the patriarch of that family, lived for a very long life and had a lot of children. So he kind of paints this picture of somebody who could be more blessed than anybody. Methuselah, as you know, was the longest, uh, had the longest lifespan ever recorded in Scripture. We don't know if that's ever, you know, lived, but what we see in Scripture, 969 years old. And then we don't see anybody who had 100 children, but Rehoboam um, came close. This was Solomon's son. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. Um, 18 wives, 60 concubines. He had 88 children. 88 children. Can you imagine that? And what, what Solomon is saying here is he goes, you could be more blessed than any person in the history of the world. You could live twice as long as whoever had lived the longest. You could have more children than anybody else has ever had on this planet. But if God isn't in the picture, and he's not giving you the ability to enjoy these things, he says, and this is the, this is the very visceral 
um, contrast that he makes. Um, he goes on to say, a man may have a hundred children and live many lives, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, and again in that culture, um, to have no burial meant no honor or no respect. It was a very, very serious thing. So he says, if you can't satis- be satisfied with anything that you have and no one respects you or honors you, and this is what he says. He says, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It, referring to the stillborn, comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun and knew anything, it has more rest than that does that man. He says, even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. Now honestly, there's a big part of me that just wishes this wasn't in here, or this wasn't the proper translation because I know this is a sensitive tragedy that too many of us in this room have, have uh, experienced. But in God's word, the richest texts often bear the sweetest fruit. And Solomon's point here is clear. He says, look, life without God, a life without meaning, living as, you could live 2,000 years, but if you're not able to enjoy what you have, he says it would have been better off if you'd never even come to this planet in the first place and experience that kind of frustration and depression. And we all want to live long lives, right? We want that for us, we want that for our children, for the one we care about, that we would live long, fruitful, successful, kind of full lives. But it's like the story of the man who was granted, he asked for immortality, he says, I want to live forever. So he's granted eternity but then he's immediately found guilty for a crime and he is placed in a prison and, and, and for the rest of eternity, he's in this prison cell. What value is there to eternity locked up in a cell? But the good news is, the good news is, life without God is meaningless, but with life with God is profoundly, it's deeply satisfying, whether you're rich or you're poor. And that's where Solomon, we're going to end up here today, he says, there's two things we need to know about God in light of money. Number one, our ability to earn money is a gift from God. Our ability to earn money is a gift from God. He says, even so, back to chapter 5, verse 18, even so, I have noticed one thing, at least one thing that is good. So remember, this, this whole desert of, of Ecclesiastes that we're walking through, every once in a while we find these oases. And he says, look, there's one thing that's good, and it's interesting, that's the same word that he used in chapter 3 when he said he's made everything beautiful in its time. It's the word that means proper or right or fitting or appropriate. He says he uses all things for this beautiful purpose. He says there's one thing, there's one thing that's beautiful, there's one thing that's good, and this is what it is. Remember, we said he circles back to this eight times, these little rays of hope in a cave of despair. He says it is good for people to eat drink and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life that God has given them. And then he adds this, we haven't seen this part yet, he says, and to accept their lot in life, to enjoy, a, it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. Solomon says, this is what's right. Enjoy what you have during the time that you have and give God the glory for it see it as from him, and say thank you. So he says, the house that you have, 
the, the money that comes in through your paycheck, the children, the, the, the things that you have. He says, enjoy them. Enjoy them deeply and enjoy them fully. Because this is a gift from God. I mean, this, isn't this the gospel message? He's given us Jesus, and we receive him, and we say, thank you. Glory be to you. Because this is our lot and our portion from God. He says, and again, to go back to chapter 3, remember we said there's a season for everything? And we said these seasons that he sends us, um, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to cry, and a time to laugh, these are ingredients that God's sending into our lives. And each of us have been given a different lot, a different portion from the Lord. And he says, take that portion that he's given you, not your neighbor, the portion he's given you, enjoy it and be thankful for it. My, uh, my nephew, Ray, is obsessed with Sesame Street, um, specifically with Elmo, who he can't, can't talk right yet, so he calls him Melmo. So he loves Melmo, which personally I think is a terrible choice, um, because Melmo's got the high, annoying voice. I think there's a lot of characters with more depth and nuance, like, like Grover and Oscar. I think there was way better choices out there. But he loves Melmo. So for Christmas, I got him this huge, talking Melmo, Okay. Um, why? Why did I get him that gift? I hate Melmo. It's about as much as you can hate a red furry Muppet. Um, and I, I also hate buying things. Okay? I'm as frugal as they come. But when it comes to my nephew, I will buy him every Elmo in Fred Meyers, if that's what he wants, right? And I, I will buy him all of Sesame Street. Like, I'll give him the whole street. I don't care. Um, because when it comes to my nephew, I, I, I got Elmo for one reason— and that's because I love to see him smile. I love to see him smile. There's nothing greater in the whole world. And, and this, this Christmas morning, um, this did not disappoint. As he opened this package, and here's some, some, some raw footage. Um, I, he opens this package. He temporarily loses his mind. And as I'm trying to free Elmo from his cardboard prison, I could not do it fast enough. And he gets him, and he just kind of beholds him. Like this Elmo, who's almost as tall as I am, um, he is just an amazement. And it's the same reason that God gives us things. Because he loves to see his children smile. And you can just imagine God up there and he sends us, he gives us these things and he just watches his delight in these things that he's given us here on earth and it just, there's nothing that delights God's heart more than to see us enjoying the gifts that he's given us. But, and hear this, our smiles increase immeasurably when we see these things as a gift from God. Because you know what the best part of giving Ray Elmo was? It, it, it wasn't seeing him interact with Elmo. It was the big, huge, knock-me-over hug that I got afterward. And the little tender kiss that he gave me. Because Elmo's not going to make Ray happy, right? Those AA batteries, spoiler alert, they're going to wear out. Right? And if not, Jeremy and Ashley are going to break the stupid thing because it always. <laughs> and and it, if you want to tick off a parent and delight the kid, get him a, a present that makes noises, right? And, and if nothing else, by the time he gets to like 14, I mean, Elmo's not coming to so high in Ray's backpack. There's going to be a time when he's tired of Elmo. But, but the relationship that Ray and I have, that will last. Everything we have, everything we have is a gift from God, including the ability to earn what we have. 
We think, well, yeah, but I worked for it. Okay, well, who gave us the brain? Yeah, but I did it with my own hands. Well, who gave you your hands? The things that we have and, the, and, the, and the, the ability to earn the things that we have, all of it goes back to him. None of it, it's all from him and for him and through him and to him. And he gives and he takes away, and that's why we say blessed be his name, not blessed be his gifts. Because the gifts that we're given, they rust, they get stolen but our relationship with God is eternal. And it was the only thing, hear me on this, it is the only thing that will satisfy the hunger of our souls. It's the only thing. Now, how do we know when we're making it about the gifts or the giver? Well, to me, the simple litmus test of my own heart is what happens when that gift is taken away? Do I, do I start sulking? Do I freak out? Or do I say, you're the only one that I need. I'm going to trust you to provide and the second one, he says, our, our ability to enjoy money is a gift from God. So our ability to earn it, and then our ability to enjoy it. He says, to enjoy your work, and this is so interesting. He says, to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this indeed is a gift from God. So he says, not just the ability to, to earn the money, but to enjoy the money that he's given you. In other words, God gives us food, but he also gives us the taste buds and the proper digestive system, if you understand what I'm saying, to enjoy that food through the whole process, right? Have you ever taken a bite of pizza and you burn your mouth on the very first bite? And you're like, ah, this stinks, and now the rest of the pizza, you can't even taste it and you can't even enjoy it, and it just becomes food. You might as well eat vegetables at that point. It's incredible, not just the money and the ability to earn it, but the ability to enjoy it. Contrast that with what he says in verse 2 of chapter 6. God gives some people wealth, possession, and honor, so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. They have everything that they could ever imagine, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. Now, we can sort through how the sovereignty of all that works, and I don't know, but here's the point. And Warren Wearsby said it better than I could. So we'll look at what he says. He says, to enjoy the gifts without the giver is idolatry. And this can never satisfy the heart. He says, if you take the gifts and you make it about the gifts and not the, and the giver, you've confused the two. You've made the gifts the end, and that's idolatry. And not only does it blaspheme God's name, but it doesn't satisfy you. Elmo won't satisfy us. And he says, enjoyment without God is merely entertainment, and it doesn't satisfy either. And, and this is what, what a word to this entertainment-driven culture that we live in today. The, the best definition that I've ever seen of entertainment. It's enjoyment without God. And what end to that? No, no satisfaction. If we accept his gifts but complain about them, we're guilty of ingratitude. If Ray says, man, what I really wanted was Cookie Monster, right? Or an Elmo whose eyes light up or whatever. We're ungrateful. If we hoard his gifts and will not share them with others, and we'll talk about that in a second, we're guilty of indulgence. Because if we give and we just hoard those things and don't give them away, it's indulgence. And then finally, but if we yield to his will, if we yield to his will and use what he gives us for his glory, then we can enjoy life and be satisfied. Say, look, the only way to enjoy what you have is to realize it doesn't ultimately belong to you. And to say, God, not my will, but yours. What would you have me? Thank you for these things. These things are amazing. They are fun. They are enjoyable. Now, what do you want me to do with them? I have this house. Now, who do you want me to invite into it? I have this money. Who can I share it with? And that's the only place we're going to find true satisfaction is we see it from God and not just from as a gift, but then for his purposes. 
And Paul had this figured out in Philippians 4. He said, people had given to Paul, and he says, not that I was ever in need, um, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. He says, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. He says, I've got the secret. I know how to be content in all situations. We say, Paul, give us the secret. And he does. He says, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. He says, look, if I have Jesus, I'm good. I'm good. If I have Jesus and I'm a millionaire, I'm good because I'm satisfied with Jesus, not with a million dollars. I don't need a next million. I've got Jesus and I can be satisfied with Jesus and have nothing because I know God is going to send manna for every single day and give me exactly what I need today. The proper relationship to money or anything is not to figure out how much do I spend, how much do I save, how much do I give, how much do I tithe? Should I do 10%, 20%? What's my relationship? No, to be the proper relationship to money or anything in our lives is to be satisfied with Jesus. And if we're satisfied with him, then everything else is going to fall into its proper place. And believe that God has sovereignly given us everything that we need. And then those gifts are just an expression, an overflow of his love. The Bible's very clear. Money is not evil. It's the love of money that is evil. Because what we do is we replace Jesus with money. Why do we do that? That's ridiculous. We do it with money. We do it with other things in our lives. And we confuse the gift with the giver. John Wesley, he said this, and this is interesting. He said, make all you can. You go, what? He says, make all you can. In fact, save all you can. Make it, save it. That's not wrong. But then he says, give all you can give all you can. And Wesley lived this out. He actually was great at, at raising money, of, of bringing money in. Then he lived very simply and gave very generously. And he was fully satisfied with his Jesus. So money is not evil. Have it, make it, earn it, and then give it away. For some of us, the, um, the God is not a, the money is not the God of spending. It becomes the God of saving. And that kind of more resonates with me. You know, your kind of your bank account, your savings account grows and you go, well, to what end? To what end and what number will be enough when I finally feel safe, I finally feel secure, and I finally feel satisfied? It will always be the next dollar. Money can't save us. Money cannot make us feel secure, and money will not satisfy us. Only God can do that. And then the last verse, and I love this, he says, they seldom reflect. Those who see their gift from God and enjoy the lot he's given them, says they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, if I receive my portion that God's given me today with a grateful heart, I will be so content with that. I'll say, God, thank you for what you've given me today. And sometimes it's a waterfall and sometimes it's a desert, right? It's not always, you know, a, a bank account that's overflowing. Sometimes you don't know where the money comes from and sometimes there's sickness and sadness. He says, whatever lot he's given me today, I'm content with him. He says, I'm so glad about what I have from him today that I will not regret yesterday and I will not worry about tomorrow because I've been given the manna of heaven, his grace, exactly what I need for today. And then tomorrow will become today and he'll provide for you again. And sometimes it's hard to know how to land the plane here and say, well, what does this look like? And I think we have to be careful about application because the spirit of God is working in your heart. I'm not the Holy Spirit. Nobody in here is for you. There's one Holy Spirit. Um, and all I want to do is conclude with a kind of a real-life example of what this looks like, of an example of, of someone, someones who have lived out what it looks like to walk with Jesus and make him the end, not his gifts. 
uh, George Young and his wife. And the story, they actually, I couldn't find her name. I'm sorry, George's wife. Um, George was a, was a young carpenter. He and his wife were dedicated to following the Lord wherever he led. He does the leading, they often said, and we do the following. God led the Youngs to the rural Midwest, and they traveled from church to church in revival efforts. Their finances were always tight, but as Mrs. Young said years later, through the many years, we never went hungry. Oh, sometimes we didn't have too much of the world's goods, but we always had so much of Jesus. Finally, they saved enough to buy a small piece of land on which George built a cottage. Though humble, it was a fulfillment of a life's dream. And when they moved in, they dedicated the house to God, and they sang the doxology. But sometime later, when the Youngs were away on a ministry trip, a thug who had been offended by George's preaching set the house on fire. Returning home, the Youngs found a heap of ashes. All their worldly goods and cherished possessions were gone. As George gazed at the ruins, he recounted the precious possessions that the fire could never destroy. His family, his relationship with Christ, his ministry, and his eternal home. There and then, the words of a hymn began forming in his mind. Within a few days, he had written all three stanzas of the great hymn, God Leads His Dear Children Along. And the chorus says this, Some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood, some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long, God leads his dear children along. And years later, after George had passed away, a music publisher by the name of Dr. Harold Lienis, he decided to track down George's widow. Um, driving to the small Kansas town where she resided, he stopped for directions and was alarmed to hear that Mrs. Young was living in the rundown county poorhouse. Leannis was deeply troubled that the widow of the author of such a great hymn about God's guidance should spend her final days in the poorhouse. When he found her and he talked to her, Mrs. Young only smiled and said, One day God took my sweet husband home. Oh, how I missed him, for we had always served the Lord together. In my heart, I wondered, where will God lead me now? Dr. Lienis, God led me here. I'm so glad he did, for you know, about every month someone comes into this place to spend the rest of their days, and Dr. Lienis, so many of them don't know my Jesus. I'm having the time of my life introducing them to my Jesus. Dr. Lienis, isn't it wonderful how God leads and some people are caught up in their jobs, in their checkbooks, in their careers, and their acquisitions. And their song is, God, leave me alone. But others keep Christ in the center of their lives and treasure him only. And they sing, God leads me along. And which song are we singing? Which song are we singing? Father, one simple prayer. You are God in heaven, and we are here on earth. Pray that our words would be few. And the simple request is that our hearts would be satisfied with nothing but Jesus. All in all forever, only Christ will sing. Everything is in Christ. And in Christ is everything. And Father, the, the world, it calls, it begs 
for our attention, for our affections, and it offers us these trinkets and these dollar bill signs, and it feeds us the lie that it can satisfy us. And God, I pray that we, we, through the power of your word, would be able to discern those lies from your truth, that there is only one who can satisfy the soul. There is only one who can give us all that we truly need, and that's in Jesus. And through him, you have given us every spiritual blessing, and you've given us many other physically, physical blessings. Father, as Americans, we have so much more than the rest of this world has. And yet each of us, we struggle every day with the temptation to make these gifts the end, and we confuse the gifts of the giver. So, Father, our one simple request, that we may be satisfied with nothing but Jesus. Give us the grace to trust you, to want you, and through you, enjoy all the things that you have given us. That we smile and we wrap our arms around these gifts and we say thank you, and we freely give them away. That we would have your generous heart. And we'd say the only thing we care about is that more people would be able to enjoy the things that you've given us the way we do. Give us hearts to go into this world, to make disciples, disciples who follow you and fall on you as their source of everything. Nothing else matters. We could have every single dollar bill on this planet, but if we don't have you, we will be discontent. But we have you, Jesus. I pray that we would be satisfied with your son and it's in his name that we are satisfied and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.